Conversion uh, to the Wesleyans, uh, at least in our church, is a pretty big deal. And by conversion, we do not necessarily mean the switching of beliefs from one set of beliefs to another. Uh, More often than not, in Christianity and in any religion, conversion is not so much the switching of beliefs as it is a fuller immersion into a deeper expression of the same beliefs. Certainly true of Paul, for instance. Paul, when he was hitting the road to Damascus, was not changing religions. He had just not yet grasped the conclusion of his own religion. He was stuck somewhere in the middle. And so the conversion was not a switch as much as it was an immersion. So we believe that this happens all the way through our spiritual lives. In fact, in College Church, we've identified seven fundamental conversions that we call soul shifts. One of those conversions is the conversion from slave to child. We started talking about this last fall. And in this conversion from slave to child, we are talking about the very identity of a person being immersed into a deeper expression of who they are in God's sight. Until we become sons and daughters of God in exactly the same way Jesus, the Son of Man, is. Until we relate to God and we know God as Jesus related to God and knew God within our humanity. That's a mouthful. Marcus Peter Johnson said Jesus did not come to disseminate information about the Father. He came to join himself with humanity and bring us into union with the Father so that we become expressions of the love that he and the Father are. Isn't that a great truth? Great. Are you sleepy? I'm digging this stuff. So this conversion from slave to child touches the identity. Think about it. Most of your problems at work and in your relationships stem from a failure to grasp who you really are. You may still perform. You may build a self-esteem out of your deficiencies. But there is something about your performance and something about your potential that is muted until you know who you are. And because you were created, you didn't invent yourself, you cannot know who you are until you go back to the one who created you. When you know God as he is and you know yourself as you are, you are starting to shift from slave to child, and it is a beautiful thing. But that process involves many conversions, beginning with our image of God. 
Where did you first uh, get your idea of who God was? When your children are small and you want to teach them about God, you start thinking of words to describe him and giving him adjectives. And he's like this, he's not like this. And, and before you get in too deep, the kids start coming up with images of their own. So uh, Monica Parker in 2010 had their now oldest son named Remy. And she asked him one day, and who is God? And Remy said, well, God lives inside of everything. And so my doctor can see God when he cuts us open. Well, the answer surprised her. And so she started asking other children on her street. And then after that, she started asking other children in Toronto where she lives. And after that, in the US and even in the UK. And the answers that she came up with were all over the place. Jonah, age three, from England said, God is a man and he lives in England. <laughs> it's going to be a long life for that boy. I think in God's mercy, he's going to have Jonah fall in love with a foreigner. Another one, Jody says, God sits at a big desk in the clouds and he watches us everywhere. Gabby H. Force says God has giant ears so he can hear everything we're saying. Another one said God has an invisible head and he, he floats in the garden, one side night, the other side day, and God sees owls and bunnies and butterflies. But he also rides a motorcycle and he's playing hockey in Pasadena right now. He can do everything. <laughs> he needs to play for the Lions. Aurora, age four, says, <laughs> God is in everything. He's in a pony. He's in the grass that the pony eats. And thank God she stopped there. Parker finished her book with a quote by Uma, age 11, that says, God lives wherever you imagine. To believe in God, you need to imagine because God can do anything that you can imagine. Now, most of us, as I say, start out with images of God and they're pretty flexible, they're fluid, so we can absorb new information and adjust those images just a little bit. But as we get older, those images become a little harder. They become more fixed, more personal, and therefore more prejudiced. They become portable, like Jeremiah's scarecrow in a melon patch. We can pick him up and move God over here and put him in this part of our life, but keep him out of that part of our life. So we still maintain that God can do everything we thought he could. God has big ears and can listen to everybody and God watches over everything. But we become more educated and therefore sophisticated about the way we talk about God. Now, for Christians, that's you, the matter's quite different. Christians believe that God came into this world in the person Jesus Christ. 
And that was a game changer. We believe that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only who is at the Father's right hand has made him known to us in John 1.18. We believe that he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all created things, Colossians 1.15. We believe that Jesus is the exact representation of his being in Hebrews 1 verse 3, and by his word, he controls all things. We believe, as John said in Revelation 1, that he is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and everything in between, so that you cannot know who God is until you know Jesus, for that is what Jesus said. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him in Matthew eleven twenty seven. You still tracking? So this is the Christian belief that Jesus, when he came into this world, is exactly like God. And not only this, but God is exactly like Jesus. Tom Torrance, in his little book, Preaching Christ Today, said, I spent 10 years in the local church ministry. It was the most insightful, penetrating years of my life. And he said, I learned in those years that the deep anxiety of the human soul is that they are always wondering, what is God really like? He said, it came clear to me one day as I knelt with a young lad who was dying on a battlefield in Italy. He was 19 years old within 30 minutes of leaving this world. Soldier looked at him and said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? He said, I assured him that he was and I went back to my parish in Aberdeen and there an old lady who was within a week or two of dying said to me, Reverend, is God really like Jesus? In his statement, um, Torrance said, it got me thinking, what has come between Jesus and God that obscures God to his people? If you're Christian, you believe that not only is Jesus like God, but God is exactly like Jesus. And this is really good news. Because it means that when you die, there is not some other figure back there behind Jesus to whom you must deal. When Jesus said no one knows the Father, he didn't mean someone other. This is why when Thomas said, well, show us the Father, and that'll be good enough for us, Jesus said, you do not know who I am? Thomas, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? <laughs> it was the same day Jesus said, how much longer must I be with these people?
You see this? There is not some shadowy figure back there sitting on a throne who's... This is beautiful news. It means that the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And so is the power of God. And so is the holiness of God. And so is the judgment of God. This is gospel, people. Now, the frustrating thing is that so is the death of God. It means this image that you had as a child growing up of a God who does all of these things dies. Gregory Anazianzus put it, this here is God crucified. Not somebody else. And that throws us for a loop. That leads us to Peter's beautiful story. I'll hurry because you're familiar with it. But before I remind you, may I remind you that the story of Peter is not in the Bible for Peter's sake, but for our sake. We are not here asking how was Peter converted. We are asking how are we converted? So it's not about what happened to him. It's that in his life, there might be a pattern for how we ourselves are converted. And here's how the pattern goes. One day in Caesarea Philippi, Peter, who is full of ideas about God, note to self, everyone who ever encountered Jesus already had ideas of God before they encountered Jesus. And if they were a little bit religious, their conversation with Jesus opened God up like a flower. But if they were very religious or formally trained in theology, their conversation with Jesus was like a buzzsaw. Chewed up everything they believed. So Peter now, with a head full of knowledge of who God is and how he operates and what he wants, and therefore when I pray, I know what to expect, I know what to hope for, I know what to pray for, because I know exactly how God operates, has a conversation with Jesus. And as he has this conversation, this image that Peter has of God starts to die Peter remembers from the day he was called that this, this guy could do anything. I watched him turn water into wine. I watched him calm a storm from the hull of a boat. I watched him cast out demons into pigs, and then he lewed the crowd. They couldn't find him. I watched him feed the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, and then I listened to his parables and his teaching, and they were deep and mysterious, and he talked about God as if he was a father, and nobody in the Old Testament saved six times ever called God a father. This person's peculiar. But Peter was getting there when Jesus turned and said, and who do you say that I am? Peter, now speaking better than he really knew, said... You're the Christ, aren't you? In, John, in Matthew's gospel, he said, you're the son of the living God. Now, if you're a theology teacher, you're like, mm-mm, A plus. 
But Jesus kept talking. And he said, and this son of the living God must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the very people who were supposed to confirm him. He must be crucified. What? So that on the third day, he'll rise again. You see what's happening? Peter has this idea of who God is. And then Jesus starts talking. And the more he talks, the bigger the questions get. And now there's not enough answers in Peter's mind to cover all these questions. Had it all till Jesus started talking. And now I can't make sense of this. And so he pushes back and he says, no, no, Lord, no, this will never happen to you. And Jesus, this Messiah, steps in and says, get behind me, devil. Really? I mean, I thought I was your defender. You're telling me I'm on the wrong side of my own religion? <laughs> Get behind me, devil. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of a man. Literally, he said, you are not minded or sold like God. You have the soul of a man. It's a staggering statement. Peter falls into full descent as the God he knew in starts to die. I think this pattern repeats itself many times in our lives. I think as children, we start out with an image of who God is and we believe it to the nth degree. This is how he works, and this is what he wants, and this is where he lives, and therefore I know exactly how to pray. And then something happens. The best I can tell, it's two or three things. We either go off to a university and some professor starts talking about history and philosophy in a way that is completely foreign to us and it undermines our Christian belief system and we start this descent. I knew who God was until he started talking. Now the questions are too big. Or there's a time of drought. I've called out to God. I asked God to fix this, and he never did. Said the young man to me, I don't believe in God anymore, Pastor. I did as a boy. Then my brother got leukemia, and I remember praying in the living room that God would heal him. Well, he didn't. And my brother is now dead. And I've decided that any God who allows that kind of thing to happen is no God at all. Or he is the devil. You see it? I knew. And then something happened. And I start to lose my footing. And there is a dying of one's religion. Sometimes... It's just a long period of silence. One young man said to me, I am doing everything now. 
Steve that I was doing two years ago, only now it's not working. Nothing is working. What else should I try? How do I feel God the way that I used to feel him? Even if he would say, no, I would take it. He just says nothing. And what is the difference between a God who says nothing and no God at all? There's a dissent. Do you understand me? The beautiful thing about this is if we will stay in the descent without running too quickly to the top again. Let me translate that. Whenever I hit one of these droughts or seasons of unanswered prayer, my first instinct is to retreat to cliches I used to believe before. Only now, they're too short for the answers. And if I will refuse the temptation to try and climb back up to belief, but if I will just go into the descent as Bonhoeffer did and say, whatever else I am, O Lord, thou knowest that I am thine. A beautiful thing will happen, people. Somewhere down there, God will find us and he will surround us with people with careful and thoughtful minds. We may go into this descent believing a hundred things and at the bottom believe only three, but the three that we believe in are now pillars deep into the bedrock of our souls. And while our God may seem smaller than he was before, he is way more powerful and more personal and closer to the truth. Is this not what Jesus meant just before he left and prayed in John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He does not mean the only true God versus other religions. He might mean the only true God versus the one you used to have. So C.S. Lewis said the prayer preceding all prayers is may it be the real I who is speaking. May it be the real thou I'm speaking to. And in between these two, said Lewis, are layers of unbelief. If you want an example of this, you need only one. Well, take Peter was the night he was betrayed. Remember it? Jesus, sitting at a table, looking at his 12 disciples, says, my father conferred a kingdom onto me, and I'm going to confer a kingdom onto you. They were rubbing their hands. And then he said, not only that, but you will sit and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Peter must have been thinking, this whole thing is going exactly like I predicted it would go. And then without breathing, Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What? Relax. I've prayed for you, son, that your faith will not fail. Oh, and when you come back, where am I going? When you return, strengthen the brothers. Jesus sees in Peter the death of God. So the soldiers come to arrest him, and Peter pulls out his sword and whacks off the soldier's ear. Jesus bends down, picks it off the ground, reattaches it to the man's face. Peter now steps back, looks at this, says nothing, and the soldiers tie him up, and they lead him away. Now listen to Luke's word, and Peter followed at a distance behind him. You see it? You see it? We were once tight, God, you and me. Then you went ahead and did this. Peter then retreats to a fire. A woman shows up and says, wait a minute, you are with him. Peter says, I swear to God, I do not know the man. I don't think Peter meant I never met the man. I think what Peter meant was that is not the man I know. That's not who I started to follow. I was following a Messiah, an anointed one. And what just showed up was a whipped slave. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. And Luke says, Peter went out and wept bitterly in the night. In that moment, there's a free fall. Peter looks at Jesus and says, I never knew you were capable of that. And then he looks at himself and says, and I didn't know I was capable of this. Stay in it. Stay in it. Now Peter, with his God, dead, Here's one of the women come back from the tomb on Easter morning. This is what she said. There were these two guys sitting in the tomb, Peter, and they told us to go tell Jesus' disciples, oh, and then they added, and tell Peter. Mark says, tell the disciples, comma, and Peter. that he is going ahead of you into Galilee, just like Peter, he wanted you to know. He wants you to know that your God has died, but another one 
is rising again. This is my word to some of you, because I think some of you this morning are trapped in this very place. Not only that, I think some of you have kids trapped in this very place. If your kids were like mine, the second they begin the descent, you rush in as a good Christian parent and try to push them to the top of the cycle and retreat to a bunch of cliches and, oh, but we know this, we know this. And the truth is, you know the holes in your own argument. You won't admit it. And some of you, I'm not being, dude, I play this game. Some of you are trapped in this descent right now and you say, man, I don't know what I believe anymore. Because the questions are too dang big. And you want to answer your questions before your soul is ready to hear them. Can I give you a little pastoral advice, please? Yes. One, stay in it. Don't retreat to shallow people and answers. It is better to stay in that place for a while and say, I don't know the answer, but I sure appreciate the question. Don't stop appreciating. And don't accuse God. In your dissent, say nothing. Because I'm an external processor, my temptation has always been to say something while I'm thinking. You must resist the urge to do this. It is better to stay quiet. Once in the middle of a rant while laying in the bathtub. That's a funny altar, by the way. Halfway through one of my accusations, man, I felt a deep impression on my soul where the Lord said, son, you don't know exactly what I am doing. You should not speak until you know more. Second, Double down on your commitment. Your temptation in this dying season of your soul, as you head into your own personal Lent, your temptation is going to be to withdraw from God and make him come after you with proof and with evidence. The problem is, listen, there is nothing in this world not even science itself, that you can know without committing yourself to it. You're waiting to commit yourself until proof. You have it exactly backwards. You must commit yourself first, and then the proof will follow. The Jews said to Jesus, Prove that you are the son of God and we will believe you. Jesus said, uh, if you believe me, you will know that I am the son of God. So be careful what you read. Be careful who you listen to. Paul said, remain convinced in the things that you know. Listen, church, because you know those from whom you learned them. Truth is always 
incarnational. It is never a proposition. It is always a person living inside of something. Be careful the people you associate with. And double down. Last, stay in the body of Christ. Yeah, in my first descent, I've done this numerous times, in my first descent at the age of 18, with questions nobody in my church could answer, I remember walking away from that little church thinking, these Christians are all fake. They don't have any depth. But then I would look around the room and I would think, but they're gone, they have such good lives. You know, and at the end of the day, the test is what a man's faith does to his life. So stay immersed in a body like this church where there are deep lives that you can live from. And then God will find you. He will find you. And you will come out loving him more than you ever did before. You will know the real thou and it will be the real you and there will be such sonship and daughtership in your relationship with God beyond like you've ever dreamed.